So we're going to dive into our last sermon in Daniel today. Um, Daniel has been a tricky book because it's, it's a book about narrative, the story of what's happening to Daniel in Babylon as the Israelites are taken, the city is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and they're taken back to, to Babylon. Um, but then, then he, he also gets these visions of prophecy that's going to happen in the future. Um, and now this book is written 2,600 years ago, 2,500 years ago. And so what we've been going through is basically prophesied prophecies that from his perspective would be future events, uh, but from our perspective is considered a part of history, right? He talks about the development of the Babylonian Empire and how the Persians are going to come in and they're going to be defeated and the development of the Persian Empire and how this one Greek king is going to come, who's Alexander the Great, and he comes in. And then the development of the Greek Empire. So it's been a... It's almost seemed like a little bit of a classroom because we've been going through basically comparing what, what he is saying hundreds of years before any of this happens to what we see now in history. But now at the end of Daniel, he starts talking about prophecy that has not happened yet. Prophecy about the end of times, basically. Uh, eschatological writings. Um, Daniel 12, these, this chapter is only 13 verses, so we're going to take it as one whole um, so let's just start by, by standing up and reading, reading uh, these 13 verses together. Now Daniel says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is changed, charged of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting content. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who are turned many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal this book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, on one, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him, who lives forever, that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people come to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the, thir at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. All right. So what have God we're going to be dwelling on today? Now... Many of you read this and we're like, what is, what is all this stuff? What is time, times, and half a time? What in the world 
<laughs> is this the English translation of the Bible? Or what are we reading here? But one of the things that I've noticed about our culture is we're obsessed, you know, well, we're fascinated with the spiritual realm, right? And movies that have made millions uh, on spiritual themes, basically demon possession and so on and so forth. But how do we, how do we recognize what is truly like something that is legitimate and something that just some guy is making up stories. Now we come to this place, this, these things haven't happened yet, and these are very cryptic things. And I think that's the nature of prophecy. The nature of prophecy is that it seems very cryptic, but when you look back and it's been fulfilled, like you look back at what he's writing about the Greeks and so on, you look at the life and, and what Alexander the Great does, for instance, and you're like, wow, this, this lines up perfectly. Um, but we come to the last sermon on the book of, of Daniel here today, dealing with the end times. And we see Daniel, he starts out with these words, at that time, in our text today. Now, what time is Daniel talking about? At that time. Well, what we, many of you may remember if you were here when we were de dealing with chapter 9, we were learning about weeks, right? Weeks of years, like or there was 69 sevens, there was the 62 sevens, and there was the 7 seventh, and there was the 70th seven, and it was very confusing. Um, but we, here he's talking about that last week of years, the three, the seven years, last week. And basically, if you talk, if you read Daniel 9, you remember he, he specifically to a year says when the Messiah will come, when the Christ will come. Hundreds of years before Jesus walks the earth, he says, you know, after this many years, Jesus Christ will come and he will basically purify our sins and so on and so forth. Now here he goes to the end of times, that last week. Um, now there's a lot of things that, you know, the Bible teaches us here. For instance, when you, uh, when you for instance, go to sort of the fringes of Christian doctrine, like um, Seventh-day Adventists, they have they're very interesting views on many things. Uh, one, of, one of the doctrines they hold to is soul sleep, right? That you, when you die, you go to sleep for a few hundred or a few thousand years, and then you wake up in the end of time, which kind of gets you scratching your head, especially when you read this text, that the, the idea that's given there is that Daniel is not going to be alive for these things. He's going to die, and he's going to be with God, and he's going to watch these things unfold, and so you're like, how, how can that sort of line up with soul sleep? Or you think about Jesus on the cross, right? What does he say to the thief next to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say after you've gone to sleep for a few thousand years, then you'll come and be with me in paradise. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, but we don't want to dwell too much on that. But what Daniel says is that at that time, Michael the archangel he will rise. And in that same verse, and in verses to come, Daniel talks about there shall be times of trouble. It's what I find very interesting about TV preachers. Right? <laughs> if you just give me your money, your problems will go away. <laughs> if you just you know, say these words this way, if you just have enough faith, all your troubles will be taken care of. You will live a beautiful, comfortable life. Uh, it, it begins to be a problem if you start reading the Bible uh, because you see a lot of people in there that suffer a lot, right? The apostles are literally stoned to death for believing Jesus was God. 
They were hated. You know, they were driven out of society. They, they faced uh, a lot of excruciating pain and never did they say, oh, I just have to have more faith and then my life will be awesome. Um, but here you say it's, it talks about time of trouble so severe that it has never been since there was a nation up until that time. Now just try to go back to school and remember your history classes, right? Remember the horrible things that have gone on this earth. The horrible things people have done to other people. The disgusting, despicable things where basically other people were treated as animals. And you, you, like some of these things you just read and you're like, how did they come up with this stuff? How, how did they even get to this point where this was a legitimate idea, right? But it says, it will be so severe that this kind of trouble has not been seen in any nation up until that point. That's a lot of horrible things going on. It's very interesting. You imagine, what is it that God is sending his angels to do? Like he just talked about Michael, the archangel, and you're like, well, archangel sounds pretty impressive to me, right? What is Michael the archangel doing if, if all this suffering is taking place? Like, I've, I've watched Touched by an Angel on TV, and this is not how it works. Right? You, you, if you don't know that show, uh, I shouldn't even know that show. I, I, should, I think it was before my time. It's got bad, uh, you know, bad special effects and even worse theology, if you, if you ask me. But the, the whole point of Touched by an Angel is that you got these angels to come, you're in trouble, you're facing some kind of situation, and the angels pop up, and they're sort of sneaking around in your life to try to make everything work out. You got your own protective angel, um, or maybe they're helping someone die peacefully, or, or something like that. So you read these verses, and you're like, well, he just talked about Michael the archangel rising up to, to be there, but then he continues to talk about suffering. So what's What's, the, what's up with that? Like, is Michael just very unqualified in his job? Or, like, what, what's going on? And honestly, that's what probably a lot of think, people think the ultimate job of angels is, to make my life more comfortable, right? Of course. <laughs> I am the center of God's eye. I'm so impressive, of course. But when you think about the word angel, the word actually just means messenger. <laughs> it's not... It's not a, it means someone bearing a message from God. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily mean that he has to keep you out of harm's way. But here you have one of the highest ranking angels, as we saw in Daniel chapter 10, Michael the archangel. He sent out but the descriptions of what happens after is there's still a lot of suffering. Because you don't see it here in these verses, but God's God's people will suffer. You also see it elsewhere in Daniel. You also see it in Revelation. And many promises for the Christian life, a comfortable one is not one of them, right? Uh, many promises of joy despite discomfort, joy despite lost, an everlasting joy that reaches beyond our current circumstances. You think about Paul, and he says he's got a thorn in the flesh, and everyone argues about what that means. Uh, like, what is the thorn in the flesh? And he says, I asked God three times to take it away. And what was God's answer? My grace is sufficient for you. 
And this Paul, who talks about all the suffering that he goes through, he's been stoned to death, the old school stoning, not the sort of new, new, new school stoning. It's like literally they tried to kill him, but he just stood up and walked away, right? They tried to, they whipped him a few times. He was flogged a few times. He was shipwrecked a few times. And you just start to think, what an unlucky guy this is when he starts to count up all the things that have happened to him. One of the times he, he survives the shipwreck and then he's bitten by a snake. And he's like, what is up with this guy? But what does he say? He says, this light and momentary affliction is nothing compared to the glory that is to come. There are many promises for the Christian life. Comforting life is not one of them. Actually, the image that we have is what Jesus Christ says, hey, if you want to follow me, you pick up your cross and you follow me. And to us, we sound like, pick up my cross. That's me eating, you know, I have to start eating more salad or whatever. Like this, that's my cross to bear in this life. The image of a cross back in the day was like an actual torturing device. No one would have put a cross in a building like that as decorations or wore it around your neck or put it in your, your ears. It, it was an actual way of killing people slowly and humiliating them while they died. So when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, no one's like, oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea. That's how I want to spend my Wednesday. No, it's, it's, a, it's a picture of denying yourself and following Christ, whatever it takes. Um, and when it comes to eschatology, the study of end times, um, people, there's so many different opinions, probably in this room alone, probably half of you disagree with where I stand on eschatology. There's a lot of, of Bible-loving, Jesus-loving Christians everywhere in the world who disagree on these things because they're very cryptic, right? What's time, times, and half a time mean? And you get, you get people arguing about that. Um, you know, what is the seven-headed monster? Is it a literal uh, seven-headed monster coming out of the sea? Or is it it's, it's a picture of something else, right? And so you like, there are all these pictures and numbers and they mean something and everyone's arguing. Um, but one of the things that I'm pretty like 100% sure on is that there's this one view of the end times called pre-tribulation. That you're going to be picked up before this mess starts happening. Right? These are probably the same preachers that kind of say, hey, give me your money and you get a, a Mercedes or something like that. Because that's, of course, God loves me. He's going to pick me up and this whole mess is going to start. But we read scripture and you see it in Daniel and Revelation that, no, the, the people of God are in there. They're suffering. If you read like Matthew 24, Jesus, he's talking and he says, and if those days, he's talking about the end of time, had not been cut short, no human would be saved but for the sake of the elect, for the sake of God, God's people, those days will be cut short. It's like pretty, pretty obvious to me in Scripture, God's people are going to be there. There's going to be suffering. So if the angels are not, not there to protect our physical bodies from harm, what exactly are they doing? And I think we see that in, in verses 1 through 3 in, in Daniel 12. Because you see in verse 1, he says, But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Verse 2, it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
In verse 3 it says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Like, What is the emphasis there? It's on eternity. The angels are there to deliver a message to God's people. Get through this. Deliver the message of Paul. This light and momentary affliction is nothing compared to the glory that is to come. Think about the, the periods of your life when you suffered a lot. Like, like I go back 20 years when my, my grandmother was murdered. And I think about what that felt like. And you're crying for days, just dealing with why, and a lot of questions following, like why would a good God allow this to happen, so on and so forth. But you think about your suffering that happened a few years ago. You think about how horrible it felt at that moment and how, yeah, it may not feel great at the moment when you think about it, but it's way less than, than what it used to be, right? Now think about eternity. Now think about your life. A million five hundred and thirteen years from now. <laughs> Just wanted to throw a random, a long time from now. And you look back, maybe you lived a really difficult life. Maybe from birth you were dealing with a body that was just decaying and you woke up knowing pain every single waking moment. Do you think when you've experienced true joy for all this time that any one of us will look back and say, yeah, but those 80 years were pretty difficult. I'm not sure it was worth it. Now, just if you think about your pain from this perspective, from the human perspective, pain that happens 10 years ago, 20 years ago, what will that look like in light of eternity? That's, that's what I think the point of eschatology is. When we think about end times, it's not for us to make charts about like, this is the time and times and half a time. I think it's to get our, our minds and our hearts thinking about eternal things. Because we're so obsessed with what's in front of us and it's easy, right? Because you can feel it, you can see it. You can feel the pain, you can feel the joy. But what we do is, you know, if you think about eternity and your, as this room, your life is not even a speck of dust. But here we are, we are obsessing over, you know, what I want to do when I'm 20, what I want to be studying, when I want to be done studying, what I want to work doing you know I want to get married and have 3.5 children and you know like have the perfect life I want to have a minivan like Gunnar because it's awesome uh no it's <laughs> uh Sienna by the way Sienna is the way to go um now you, you think about your life and you plan it and you like plan all these things and you want to get a better car and a bigger house and you're like you're always just thinking about the next thing and, and that's how many people go through life they're just chasing a carrot that's just always a little bit further on that's why I think a lot of people have a lot of regrets when it comes to their deathbed because they've never thought about the point of all of this. They've just been running. Just been running after the next thing. So I think that's the point of, of eschatology, of thinking about end times, thinking about eternity. It's like, are you thinking about the point of all of this? Are you thinking about the perspective of your life and your suffering or even all the good things you're enjoying right now? If you're just, if you're just well off financially, do you realize that that is nothing compared to what you have in Jesus Christ. Because I think we have to stop 
And just think about that for a moment. These words that we see on the screen, they're not words of your best life now. Like That's literally a title of a Christian bestseller. Your best life now. Just think about that for a moment. Your best life now means I'm going to hell, right? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a best-selling Christian book. That's, that's not what you see in Scripture. Um, the emphasis is on people whose names are found in the book of life. The emphasis is on people that awaken to eternal life and some to everlasting contempt, everlasting suffering. And those who are found faithful through it all, shining like the stars in the glory of eternity. The job of Michael, the archangel, is to strengthen the, God's people through that time. To remind them of the hope that they have when they see their maker face to face. Now most people, they realize that a lot of things in life are worth sacrificing for. Right? If you want to if you, if you play a sport uh, and you want to achieve like a gold medal in the Olympics or something, you've you got you to sacrifice a lot of things to get to that place, right? You've got to sacrifice all that delicious sugar, you know, that you cannot eat anymore. Um, sorry, there are kids in the room. It's horrible. Sugar is really bad. Uh, you, you, you need to sacrifice like what feels good in the moment, just feasting on like that releases dopamine and you just feel like, oh, this is so good. Uh, you got to sacrifice all that. you got to train your body to just keep running and running and running. Like if you want to be a marathon runner, you, you can't stop when you feel pain because that comes pretty early on. You just got to keep running. And if you want to get something that you feel is valuable, you're willing to sacrifice a lot of things to get here. So think about the sport that you like, you know. And you're like, what, what people do to achieve something in that sport? That's a lot of sacrifices for something that, you know, may last a moment where you stand on a podium and you get a gold medal. Unless it's like a, a sport of like, gaming or something. Aren't they thinking about putting computer games in the Olympics or something like that? Or darts. Darts is one of those sports where you can basically just throw things at a, a board. Um, but all these other sports. Now, I think about all the, maybe you're not athletic. Maybe you're like, maybe I want to be debt-free. I, I want to own my house, and I don't want to be paying the rest of my life a mortgage. You think about the sacrifices required there. Think about not going out to eat as much, not going to the movies all the time, not, you know, all the things that you need to give up to get to that goal. You want to be good at school? Think about all the, the killing of the procrastinator within you, you know, to try to get there. The sacrifices of sleep for most people, usually probably because they're procrastinating a lot uh, until right before exams. Or maybe you got to sacrifice times where you go out with friends and you just got to stay home and read a book that you rather wouldn't be reading. But here's the thing. We realize the importance of setting goals for all these subcategories of life. But what about our life as a whole? Um, we set goals for our physical health, our athletic accomplishments, our education, but what about our eternal and spiritual well-being? Now, what hangs in the balance there is not just a bad grade, 
It's not just delayed graduation or heartburn or a bronze medal instead of a gold one or whatever it is. It's eternity in heaven or hell. Eternity in bliss or suffering. What is it that you want to be the theme of your life? What, what do you want people to think about when you pass on about how you lived your life and what the purpose of your life was? What is the legacy that we leave? These verses, they impacted me this week because I realized, like, I have a rough idea of what I want my life to be around. You know, I want to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to be a loving and good husband to Swava. And I want to be, you know, their intentional and caring father to my children. And I want to be a good shepherd for the church. But usually when we set goals, you know, like, let's say you're a guy that wants to accomplish something in the Olympics, you don't just set a goal of, I want to get a gold medal in the Olympics. You set up steps like, what do I need to do to get there? And I, a lot of us, we probably don't think about this. What does it look like for me to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it look like for me to be a loving husband to my wife or a loving wife to my husband? What, is, what does it look like for me to be an intentional, caring father who is there? What does it look like for us today to lay out a plan for our eternal well-being and flesh out what it looks like for us to get to these goals by the power of the Holy Spirit? And what I've found to be true is that when I set goals, uh, it's not just setting the goals that is important as what I become when I strive for those goals and when I reach those goals. And ultimately, if, if we're not intentional in our world today with our time, we will not achieve those goals. There's literally something for you to do every second of life. Right? You've got this constantly vibrating thing in your pocket that grabs your attention, and you can, like, you can just go for it, right? Yeah, it's, it's sort of ironic because we're getting to a, a point where everyone knows the phenomenon of, uh, what is it, phantom vibrations? Is that what it's called? Anyone know what that is? It's when you feel a vibration in your pocket, but there's not actually, your phone isn't actually going off. And so you got a whole generation of people that are just paranoid over, like, what? What's it? Nope, nothing, nothing. Um, and you, like, literally, you, you don't have to sit at the doctor's office and read the boring tablet papers on the, on, on the table in front of you. You can be watching your favorite TV show or listening to your best music or scrolling through mindlessly through, through social media and getting angry about stuff that you didn't even care about before because, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's causing a whole generation of people to just be more anxious and, you know, there's everything, something going on. If you, in our day and age, if you're not intentional about something, if you're just waiting for time to do the stuff you want to, it's not going to happen. Because you have to create time for the things that are important. Because if you just allow yourself to do whatever you feel like at that moment, there will never be available time for anything. People with goals they succeed because they they know where they're going and when you lay out a plan you turn sort of a random walk into a chase for something better and what what does it look like for us to keep eternity in mind when we lay out a plan for our life 
Right? Not just thinking about roughly like, okay, being a follower of Jesus would be awesome and I'll probably do that when I have the time. But what is it like, no, what do I need to do? What do I need to sacrifice? Can I not binge watch three series on Netflix this week so that I can do something more awesome for Jesus? Or how can I be there for my kids or my family? Now in, verses, in verse 4, Daniel is told to seal up this book so that when these things happen, people can not only experience the prophecy, but they can look at the prophecy. But there's one strange sentence there that Mark read. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, this caused a lot of people like, of course, Jesus is coming on Wednesday, right? <laughs> because we live in an age where we don't just have boats with sails. We have them with engines, combustible engines to get them across the sea in, in weeks instead of months or however long it takes for a boat to get across. <laughs> I'm not an expert in that. Um, but you think about airplanes. You think about we can fly across the world in hours instead of months. Um, you think about knowledge, right? That phantom vibrating thing in your pocket. It's got access to so much knowledge from just all of human history almost in that little thing in your pocket. So this has caused a lot of people to be like, see, this is the end of days because we can travel with airplanes and we have access to Wikipedia on our phones. There it says, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Could that mean this is the end of days? Yeah, it could. It can also, if you give it a 300 years and we're starting to travel between countries through portals or something like that, that can also be more fitting uh, than, than what we have today. So I'm, I'm not too sure about that. Um, in verses 15, uh, 5 to 13, we're, we're given more insight into the end times. And one of the things that stands out to me is found in verse 6. <clears throat> when the man in the linen, who I think is Jesus, is asked, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? What I find interesting there is because even in the chaos, they still know, like, that guy's in charge. It's not just guys wandering around thinking about, oh, I wonder how long this takes. It's, no, I'm going to ask that guy. He's in charge. They turn to Christ to ask, how long will these things be happening? Now, they're not just hoping for something better to happen. They acknowledge the one who's in charge in every circumstance, no matter how bright or bleak that circumstance is. Now, imagine that you were met by a stranger on the street, and he says, I've been watching you for like two years, and you're a bit creeped out because he's been watching you for about two years, but he says, I like you as a person, you're nice, and I want to give you five million kronars just because you're a nice person. Now imagine then you still find out that that guy is actually homeless and he doesn't own a home. And the way he gets money is by asking other people to buy him money. And you're like, okay, but you, you don't, you're not as excited about the price now because you think, well, it looks like he doesn't really have the means to fulfill his promise of the five million kronars. Now imagine this happens again and... Someone says, I want to give you five million kronars. You're still a little creeped out that they've been watching you for two years, but hey, it's five million kronars. And he opens up his bank account, and you see in there 500 million kronars. And you're like, 
whoa. All of a sudden, you get really excited about the possibility of getting those five million kroners because it looks like he has the means not only to say the words, but to back it up with actual money. The reason why I bring this up is because we often want to be excited about the promises of God in Scripture while also trying to minimize God's authority in every circumstance of life. I think I've said this before, like when, when, when Mikhail got diagnosed with the cancer back like two and a half years ago, the, the chaplain of the hospital came in and it was sort of a grieving, you know, you know, I think he helps with grieving parents. And, but I was like, I'd like to talk about theology, right? I'd like to talk about what he believes. And, and something came up, something along the lines of, you know, God didn't allow this to happen, right? And I'm like, no, actually, I, th I think he did. Yeah, nothing in this world happens without him knowing about it. And the reason why I said that is because, you know, we like our coffee mug verses. Right? We like the verses taken out of context, just slap them on a coffee mug, drink our caffeine in the mornings, and we're like, yes, all things do work together for my good, according to to his will, for those who love him and are called by him. Yes, amen, yeah. But then you don't read it in context. It's actually not talking about that dream car of yours. It's not actually talking about the dream job, you know. It's talking about molding you into the image of Christ. But here's the thing. We like that promise. But then a lot of us like to pretend like, actually, God is pretty caught off guard when bad things happen to my life. Like, he would never allow this to happen. And when bad things happen, he's just sort of scrambling around, like uh, touched by an angel. Like, who's, who do I send to, to help Gunnar in a situation? But we got to understand that when we minimize God's power in, in the difficult circumstances of life, we're also sort of sawing the branch that we sit on. Right? We're taking that off. Like, yeah, hold on to that. All things work together for your good. But ultimately, the way some of us view God is that he's not actually powerful. He's not actually in control. If anything, it's more of a hopeful suggestion that hopefully God will somehow figure out a way to turn everything into your good. But, but the Bible is not that way. Like you, you read this in the book of Daniel. What I find interesting there is not the time, times, and half a time, which I think we've settled in Daniel 9. He's talking about years when he's talking about, so it's three and a half years, and you can see that later. But rather, I find it interesting that they, like, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of everything happening, he asks that one guy, how long will this be happening? And he's like, for three and a half years. So in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the suffering, he turns to Christ. To me, when I was reading that, I just had to ask myself the question, who do, who do I turn to like, in my times of trouble? What do I turn to? I mean... Like there's, there's a big problem with, for instance, video games in today's society. I think it was a couple of years ago where the government of China was investing in 400 rehabilitation centers for video games uh, uh, addictions for people who just couldn't stop playing video games. And I think that's actually a lot of has to do with because you are doing these missions and you're accomplishing them and you feel like you're doing something in real life. And maybe you're just running away from realities that face you that are hard to deal with, maybe. But at the same time, 
there's a lot of things calling out to us to turn our way there. But it's silly. It's silly like when, when Elliot was talking in the beginning of the service. Are we the ones that turn our face to created things rather than the creator? Are we the ones... Like, what, what do we turn to? Who do we turn to when things get tough? Or better yet, in an affluent society like ours, who do we turn to when things are going awesome? When, when you have enough money, when you have no prayer request, like your prayer is, you know, your wish list to Santa is changing and you basically got everything you want, who do you turn to then? Is God sort of out of the picture? Because you've gotten everything you want from him? Where do we go to find answers? But here's the text. We, we see who's in charge. We, to get answers over how long the suffering period will last, the answer is given time, times, and half a time, three and a half years, which is later confirmed in verse 11 when he says the 1290 days. Again, we've gone over <laughs> calendars before, right? The ancient Jewish calendar having 12 months of 30 days, and it gets complicated. Um, but yeah, basically it's three and a half years, roughly, uh, whatever calendar you use. But what happens during that time frame? The text tells us when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all of these things would be finished. Though the scriptures, it teaches us plainly, God's people will be on earth experiencing the suffering under this character, the Antichrist, and sacrificing their comforts, their status, and lived for Jesus Christ. What I find interesting about the book of Daniel is that there are two characters in there. When the prophecies arrive, they're very closely linked to one another. We've talked about Antiochus Epiphanes a lot and his persecution of the Jews. If you know about Hanukkah, for instance, in, in Jewish tradition, to, to do a sort of Jewish Christmas, basically, around that time, that's celebrating the end of Antiochus Epiphanes persecuting and killing the Jews. And that's Daniel. He prophesied about Antiochus Epiphanes. And then when you read his prophecies next to this character called the Antichrist, then they're very similar to one another. Like you can read in the, in the first and second book of the Maccabees. It's during that period. Um, now, they're sacrificing comforts. They're sacrificing status and lives for Jesus Christ because he's worth it. Now, Daniel, he asks what the outcome of all of this is and, the, uh, uh, and is unanswered. That is for a later time to be revealed, much of which is revealed in the New Testament, for instance, in the book of Revelation. It, it basically builds on a lot of, of Daniel. It adds little colors and, and distinctions to the, the whole picture. Now, in that revelation, we see God's judgment pouring on the earth and Jesus returning. And now he's not born as a baby in a manger in a cave. He's not the suffering servant on a cross. He's coming as a king. He's coming and saying, my time is up. I've given you opportunity to turn to me. I've given you opportunity to stop massacring one another, killing one another. I've given you the opportunity to come. Now I'm coming as a judging king. Death will be a memory. Pain will be a, a long-gone reality. Tears will dry up and never return. Hate will be conquered and buried by love. 
and life will be perfect as it was in the beginning. That's the picture we see. And we will be with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior for eternity. Now the ultimate point of prophecy with regards to the end times is not charts and predictions. It's the eternal hope that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our suffering, it may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning, like the good book says. Our suffering may, not, may, may last for a lifetime, but compared with eternity, it will not feel more than one night. The future is in God's hands, even in the midst of the chaos. He rules and he reigns, even in every, if every, everything else falls apart. You lose everything you own, and, and people you relied upon are stabbing you in the back and leaving you. He is a rock that stands forever. When everything else is falling apart, what is the thing? Who is the one you're going to cling to? He's the rock of ages that will not budge. Now, in the end, you see numbers of days given for giving over the, the earth to Antichrist, the 1,290 days when he rises to power, and then God's people, they suffer, and then 45 days after that, something happens. Now, this again is oddly similar to Antiochus Epiphanes in chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. You remember what it said there? It said, you know, that basically he's going to come into the temple, he's going to defile the temple, and for 2,300 mornings and evenings, no sacrifices will be done on the temple and that's what you read happening under Antiochus Epiphanes. He comes with his horses into the temple. He turns it into a temple to Zeus. He starts sacrificing pigs in there and so on and so forth. Um, so it's oddly similar to that. And just as we've witnessed the fulfillment of that prophecy in human history about 2,000 years, uh, uh, 200 years before Christ, so we can have assurance that these prophecies concerning what is to come will eventually be in the here and now. Now, one of the things that was amazing to me when I was in Israel is just the conflict happening. Like, like a, lot of, a, lot of the, a lot of the commentaries I, I use are, are guys that were kind of laying out these prophecies before Israel, or before the Jews became, came back into uh, Israel and they kind of formed their own country. I was just standing there. There's like a lot of hostility there. It's a lot of, I went to the, what's called the Temple Mount. And, you know, there's just these armed guards everywhere. And, you know, us silly Icelanders trying to, <laughs> I don't know what we're doing up there, but we're, we're having fun. Uh, you got the Western Wall, which is basically the wall to the Temple Mount. And there's a mosque up there, right? And the, the Muslims believe that's where Muhammad ascended into heaven on a, like a, a white goat or something, white, white horse or I don't know something like that and so that's like their third holiest place on earth or something like that and then the Jews are outside they're putting their hands up against this wall basically praying for the destruction of the mosque so that they can build their temple again and actually I came up with an awesome idea that actually I don't think that's the temple mount later sermon for that but no uh, so me and my dad were nerding out over there reading like Josephus and coming up with weird theories anything anyway but it was just, like, I remember stopping one guy. I was walking by the Temple Mount, and this, this Jewish guy, he comes and stops, and he does this. <laughs> and then he keeps walking. And I was like, hey, what, what were you doing? Oh, I was praying for the destruction of the, the mosque behind you. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Whoa. But, like, 
this is a lot of these prophecies about the sacrifices ceasing and so on and so forth. Like I walked into an institute called the Temple Institute. And these guys, what they're doing is they're looking at the Bibles, they're looking at rabbinical writings, and they're trying to rebuild, have everything ready to rebuild the temple as soon as they have the opportunity. So they're trying to get like breed a red heifer. They're trying to like make all these garments for the high priest and get all the instruments to sacrifice the animals and so on and so forth. They're getting the temple ready, uh, the sacrificial, like the, and we were walking through there and they're just basically waiting for the, the time to get on that temple and build, build their temple again. So I find it interesting reading all these commentaries before all this was happening and wondering like, what would they think if, this was, if they were writing this now and seeing everything happen in Israel and so on and so forth. And I just thought it was very interesting. But... What is that that we need to do in the meantime? I don't think we need to like it's nerding out over all this stuff. It's, it's okay. You know, I'm not. I'm not putting any slack, flack flack on that slack or something like that. Uh, that's, that's okay. I like to nerd out too. Uh, but we need to always preach the worth of Jesus Christ. I think because that while sacrifices they come and whether it's you know, a sacrifice of comfort in life or life itself. We need to understand the worth of Christ if we're going to go through suffering like that. If we're going to take the ultimate sacrifice of our life, we need to know that what we are giving our lives for is worth it. It's, it's the parable of the kingdom of God that Jesus said. It's like a guy finding a treasure in the field and he gladly goes and he sells everything he owns because he realizes that treasure is worth everything he owns. So we need to preach the value and worth of Christ. Because, you know, when sufferings come, they will come. We need to remember, you know, even in our daily life, just waking up saying, I'm not going to live for myself. We need to remember if we're going to live for Jesus Christ and all the sacrifices that entails, need to remember he's worth every sacrifice I bring. How do we do that? We don't water down the message of the gospel. We don't water down the Bible. We trust in its promises that it is able to equip us for every good work. We teach the Bible. We don't want like a diet version of Christianity. Uh, we teach it to ourselves. We teach it to others. We sing it in our gatherings. We pray it in our homes. And we see it in our communion every week. We we want to be obsessed with this message and remind ourselves that this is worth it. The kingdom of God is here and we pick up the story where our forefathers left off and we continue with the message, repent for the kingdom of God has come. And I'm honored to pastor this church. I'm honored to teach you the word of God and I hope that I teach you well that we must always marvel over the beauty and grace of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing else that will sustain in the rough seas of life. And it's not just if. If we face rough seas, it's when. Because this world is messed up. It's not the way it was created to be in the beginning. We know suffering. We know pain. And in the end, we might find ourselves at the hospital staring at that fluorescent light in the ceiling, knowing that each breath can be our last or each beat of my heart can be the last. And what is our comfort then? And I love what the Westminster Catechism, is it Westminster Catechism that says our life, our, our 
see, I shouldn't quote things on the fly. You know, uh, what, what is the, uh, no, not as, what is the chief end of man? What is my comfort in life and in death that I am belong body and soul to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? That's our eternal comfort. So I hope that it's yours. I hope that we remind ourselves of the value of Christ when we go and basically we die to ourselves because we realize he is greater. If you're not a Christian in here, I would say there's nothing greater in this life than following Jesus Christ. He says, I've come to give you life to the fullest. For a lot of people, they don't understand that because Christian life kind of seems restrictive. Like there's a lot of rules. I don't know, I want to live as my own God. But ultimately, what I've found to be true is that God knows better than I where my joy is found. And so I hope you have tasted the joy and found joy in Jesus Christ as I have.